Well, good morning, church family. It is so good to be able to worship our Lord together again on another Sunday that he has given us to enjoy. We are going to be continuing our series in the one another's, and this week we're going to find ourselves once again in the book of First Thessalonians. So if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to First Thessalonians chapter 5, and we'll be starting in verse 1. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need of anything to be written to you. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman who is pregnant, and they will never escape. But you, brothers, are not in darkness, that the day would overtake you like a thief, for you are all Sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night, nor of darkness. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us be awake and sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation." For God has not appointed us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. Therefore, comfort one another and build up one another, just as you also are doing. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that as we look at this text, that you would be pleased, that you would be glorified as we meditate on the truth of your word as we see from it how we can draw encouragement even from an event like the day of the Lord. And so, Father, we pray that you would give us the mind of Christ, that you would help us to understand what your word has to say for us and that we would live in response to it. Thank you, Father, for this time. It's your sons and we pray. Amen. Well, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, one of the most common things that you'll say or you'll hear other Christians say is that we all have a need for encouragement. And we need encouragement because we live in a hectic world, a world that is filled with stressors, filled with disappointment and hardship. And due to these hardships in our lives, it is not at all uncommon for us to be discouraged. For us to feel down, for us to be sad. Perhaps we might even be angry about our lives and the situations that we're in. We're wondering, God, why? Why have you allowed for us to go through these difficulties? As a result, what we often do is we seek out people in our lives who we can talk to, people who will listen to us, who will tell us things that make us feel better about our lives and our situations. It's always nice to have people come alongside us to encourage us. But what would happen? What would happen if nobody is available to talk to you when you need them the most? Or what would happen if you find yourself in a place where someone is coming to you, approaching you, and they need encouragement? What would you say to them? What truths would be helpful in the need of the moment? I can't necessarily provide you a step-by-step guide as to which text you should go to because, well, each situation is different, right? Each circumstance is different. But what I can provide for you this morning is a template, 
a template that can help you begin to grow in how to encourage others and build them up, right? Or even what truths that you can go to to encourage, uh, to, to find encouragement. So this morning, we're going to observe a template on how we can grow in encouragement of one another, and we will do so by looking at two necessary elements of truth that help Christians learn how to encourage and build up one another. Two necessary elements of truth that help Christians learn how to encourage and build up one another. The first one is right thinking about God's Word, and the second necessary element is right living in response to God's Word. So right thinking about God's Word and right living in response to God's Word. The first Uh, The first necessary element of truth that helps Christians learn how to encourage and build up one another is we must have right thinking about God's Word, right thinking about God's Word. And the first way that we can grow in right thinking is found in remembering what God has said, remembering what God has said. Now, we know from our previous sermons in 1 Thessalonians that the Thessalonians were a model church in the way that they loved one another. But what we also learned is that their knowledge was incomplete. They needed more training. They needed more instruction. And in particular, they wanted more instruction. They needed more instruction on understanding what would happen to their Christian loved ones who died before Christ returned. They were concerned. They were worried. They had anxiety that their loved ones would miss out on God's promises because, well, they died and Christ has not yet returned. So will they miss out? But what we learned is, no, they won't miss out. Right? Their loved ones won't miss out. But in fact, they will have first priority. They will rise in Christ first. They will meet Christ in the air first. Right? And then those who are alive on that day, they will then join them uh, in the air with, with Christ. And so, with those truths, the Thessalonians were encouraged to, uh, to comfort one another. And this leads us now to verse 1 of our chapter, uh, chapter 5. Now, concerning the times and seasons, brothers, you have no need of anything to be written to you. So, Paul has already addressed their concerns about whether their loved ones would miss out on uh, the rapture being uh, brought up together with Christ. But now, Paul turns his attention to another concern. We don't really know how Paul knew about all these different concerns, but it's very likely that, that um, when Timothy went to go encourage the Thessalonians, he gathered uh, not only information on how they were doing, but he also grabbed some of their questions and he brought them back to Paul, and Paul is now writing a letter to address those questions. And so they had a concern. What was this concern about? Well, it's not when we see uh, the times and seasons, it's not necessarily about what time of year it was or when they should uh, plant their crops. What we see in verse 2 is that the church was concerned about when the day of the Lord would occur. But what Paul tells them back in verse 1 is, you don't need to know anything about the day of the Lord. I don't need to write anything further for you. Why? Well, it's not because Paul is saying, like, oh, it's not important. Or uh, it's not like Paul is saying, you don't need to know that. What Paul is saying is, what I've revealed to you before, what I've taught you before, was everything that we know and it's everything that we need to know. Now, we were not there. 
So we don't know what that is. And so by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul lets us in on what those things are. The first thing that we see is that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. And when we think about a thief in the night, that's not a good thing. Right? You're not sitting in your bed at night hoping, right? eagerly hoping and waiting for a thief to come into your house. Right? No one's like, I just can't wait for that person to come by and steal my catalytic converter right? or, or whatever else they might be wanting from my house. Right? We're not like, I really, really can't wait for this stranger to come violate my, my privacy and, and, uh, and make me feel not safe at home. We're not eagerly anticipating that. Right? When, and, and anyway, when we have a thief coming in the night, it's also not something that you're expecting, right? It's not like, it is now 12.05 p.m., I mean, a.m., and it is now time for the burglar to come to my house, right? No, it's unexpected, right? We don't know when, when that, that thief is going to come. And so we see there is actually a, a relationship from the rapture and the day of the Lord. Both are unexpected events. However, the day of the Lord is a negative event, right? That's why we're highlighting this aspect of the thief in the night, it's a negative event. The rapture was designed to preserve and save Christians from judgment. It's something that we ought to look forward to. The day of the Lord is not so. That's why it's compared to a thief in the night. When Jesus compared his second coming to a thief coming in the night in Matthew 24, that's not a positive thing. If you look at the context, it's all about judgment. He is warning the people in those days to be ready for his coming because when he does come, he's going to judge for their sin. Time's up. No more second chances. That is why the people in those days, after the rapture has occurred, need to figure out whether they're going to worship God or whether they're going to continue to rebel. Those who rebel, they're going to be taken away for judgment. But those who choose to worship God, they will remain. Returning to 1 Thessalonians 5, this judgment is what Paul has in mind. We see that in verse 3. He says this, While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman who is pregnant, and they will never escape. Right? Just when people think that everything is all right, there's no God, there's no judgment, that is when the destruction that accompanies Christ's second coming will occur. It comes just as suddenly as labor pains. Now, obviously, I don't know what that's like, right? But I've been told, I've been told that you can't anticipate labor pains, right? When the labor pains come, it's not like it's time, it's time for labor pains, right? They just come. It's unexpected. You don't know when it's coming. Right? Even if you know the time is near, you don't know when those labor pains will hit until they hit. And in a similar way, that is how quickly and how suddenly this judgment will come. Now, Paul tells the Thessalonians that there is a group of people who will never escape. Right? So who are the they who will never escape? It is those who are unbelievers. And we see that, see that a little more clearly in verse 4, which leads us to the second way we can grow in right thinking about God's word, which is remembering our identity. Remembering our identity. Verses 4 and 5. But you, brothers, 
are not in darkness, that the day would overtake you like a thief, for you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness. So Paul identifies those who will never escape the destruction of the day of the Lord as those who are in darkness. Right? This doesn't seem entirely encouraging because Paul's saying, hey, you know, we're gonna, I want you guys to be encouraged, but then he's talking about destruction and judgment. But remember, the people who will receive this destruction, who will receive this judgment, are those who are people of darkness, people who are of the night. Right? And he's telling the Thessalonians, you're not like that. Or you guys are not like that. You will not be surprised by the coming of the day of the Lord because that judgment is not for you. Why? Because you're not sons of darkness. You're not sons of night. You're sons of light. You are sons of the day. And notice this too in verse 5. For you are all sons of light and sons of day. That's inclusive language. That means that every single Christian without exception, is a son of light, is a son of day. Every single Christian, every genuine believer is not characterized by night and darkness, but is characterized by light and day. And so because we are all of the light and we are all of the day, any temptation we may have to believe that God is going to punish us or judge us for our sins after we've repented of our sins and placed our faith in Christ needs to be counseled with truth. Have any of you, because of the sins that you've committed, felt as if God is mad at you? That God is going to judge you for your sin. That you are the target of God's wrath. Have you felt like that? When you've experienced hardship and trial in your life, have you felt as if God is treating you like an enemy? That God is judging you? Have you felt like that? If you have, counsel yourself with truth. Remember that if you have genuinely, indeed, placed your faith in Jesus Christ and repented of your sin, you are no longer the target of his wrath. You are no longer the target of his judgment because all of those sins have been paid for in Jesus Christ. Isn't that encouraging? No matter how much you mess up, even in this life, you are no longer the target of his wrath. Sure, he might correct you with corrective discipline, but that is different than wrath. You are not designated for hell any longer. All that is paid for by Christ. You see, when difficulties come into our lives, we're tempted to forget that Christ died for our sins to bring him, uh, to bring us to himself. We're tempted to forget who we are now because of Christ. Think about it. When you wrestle with sin, how do you think about yourself? Normally, when we wrestle with sin, we kind of identify ourselves by the sin itself. Right? For those who um, 
uh, and there's, yeah, for, for those who are alcoholics, for instance, or they call themselves alcoholics, or they put their identity in that label of alcoholic. Right? That's the whole thing that comes out from those 12-step programs, right? This is who you are. I am an alcoholic. That is incorrect. That is incorrect. Because if you are a genuine Christian who has placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you've repented of your sin, you are not an alcoholic. You are a Christian who has been temporarily enslaved to alcohol. But your core identity is not in alcoholism. It is in Christ. If you wrestle with pornography, you are not a sex addict. You are not a sex addict. Your identity is found in Jesus Christ. You are a Christian who has been enslaved temporarily to pornography. But your core identity is not found in your sin. If you're an angry person, you are a Christian who wrestles with anger. And you need to get that under control, but your core identity is found in Christ, not in your anger. And that's what we need to remember. That's what Paul reminds us also in 1 Corinthians 6, 11. And such were, past tense, some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. We were all once identified and defined by our sins, but no longer, but no longer. In Christ, we have newness of life. We are a new creation. We are co-heirs with Christ. We are his sons and daughters. That sin that left that deep set crimson stain has been taken away. And we've been washed clean because of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, when we're discouraged, when we're tempted to believe that we are unworthy of the salvation that we've received from the Lord... Well, we have to remember that, yes, that is technically true, right? We are unworthy of that salvation. But we have to remember that God chose to save us through Jesus Christ because he chose to set his love on you. He chose to forgive you. He chose to adopt you into his family. So we have to remember where our identity is found. It's not in our sin. It's in Christ. It's not in what you bring to the table. None of us are indispensable. None of us have a gift that is so necessary to the church where if we're not here at this church, this church all falls apart. Well, maybe except Archie. But all of us are indispensable. I mean, sorry, all of us are... Uh, we're, we're not indispensable. We can be replaced. You and I bring nothing to the table in our salvation except our own sin. Have you ever thought about that? We bring nothing to the table except our own sin. All we've done is sin. All we've done is mess things up. All we've done is dishonor the Lord. All we've done is harm other believers. That's all we bring to the table. We bring nothing to the table. We're not worthy of it at all. But God 
chose to set his love on us. So we have to remember our identity. When we're tempted to forget who we are in Christ, we have to remember that we are his. We have to remember what is true about the situations that are tempting us to forget, that are tempting us to give up. In Philippians 4, 8, Paul reminds believers that we ought to be thinking about the things which are true, the things which are dignified, right, pure, lovely, and commendable. In other words, he's calling us to think differently about our lives and our situations. Right? Sometimes we look at Philippians 4.8 and we're thinking, well, maybe instead of watching TV, I should be thinking about things that are true. Maybe I should, you know, when it comes to things that are lovely, maybe I should think about those beautiful flowers that are in Golden Gate Park or whatever else. Right? That's what we would, that's kind of how we've taught this verse. But that's not what Philippians 4.8 is telling us. It's not just like, okay, go think about true things, go think about um, lovely things and everything that's like cool in this world. Think about those things and don't think about worldly things. That's not what Philippians 4.8 is telling us. Right, Paul is trying to get the Philippians to think about their situation. And so for us, when we find ourselves in difficult circumstances, in trials, in hardships, we have to be examining ourselves and thinking this, what are the things that I know are true in this situation? What are the true things that I know about my situation? And we have to also ask ourselves, are my thoughts about this situation dignified? Do they honor the Lord and the other people involved? Are my thoughts about are my thoughts and my attitudes about my situations correct? Are the thoughts that I have about other people right? Are my thoughts pure in the way that I consider the things that are going on? Are my thoughts praiseworthy? Would Jesus be pleased with how I am assessing the hardship in my life? Would he be pleased with how we're treating other people in our lives? Would he be pleased with the words that are coming out of our mouths? Would he be pleased with how we are conducting ourselves as a whole? And when we're thinking about those truths, that's what we have to Uh, to consider. These are all hard questions that we have to ask ourselves, but we have to remember that that in our life difficulties, God does not expect perfection. He's not expecting perfection. He knows you in and out. He knows what you're capable of. He knows that it only takes a second for you to mess up. So he's not asking for perfection. What's he asking for? Faithfulness. All God is asking of you is faithfulness. Are you striving to be faithful to him? When you know what the truth of the word of God says, are you striving to be faithful to live that out or to even believe the right things? You're going to fail. You're going to forget what God has said in his word. You're going to forget that your identity is found in him, but the reason why we have one another here at the church It's because God gave us each other so that we could remind each other of these things that we are so tempted to forget instead of being discouraged, instead of being disillusioned. We can be encouraged and we can be strengthened. And that brings us to the second necessary element of truth that can help Christians learn how to encourage and build up one another. 
And that is we must have a right living in response to God's word. Right living in response to God's word. As we established earlier, the encouragement and building up process of Christians is made possible by right thinking about God's word. Right thinking is fueled by remembering all the things that God has said about himself, how he's revealed, uh, what he's revealed about himself in his word, and what he tells us about ourselves too. But right thinking about God's word on its own is not always helpful. What do I mean by that? Well, I'm not dinging the sufficiency of scripture, but what I'm trying to get at is you can have all the right thinking about God and about his word and all the knowledge uh, that, that is found in, the, in this book that we have here, but you can still fail to allow that right thinking to influence right living in response to God's word. We're a Bible teaching church. We, have, we still have Sunday school. Okay, not everybody utilizes it, but we still have Sunday school. Right? And we can be tempted as a church to take a lot of pride in our knowledge. Right? How many of us could be tempted to think, that church over there, it's not a true church. It's not a good church. They're not faithful. Right? They believe in community outreach. How dare they? Or not, not only that, but uh, maybe we'll say, like, has your pastor preached through numbers? I think not. We can take a lot of pride in the knowledge that we've obtained. But let me tell you, if we forget to live out the, the, the word that we've received, we forget to allow for the word to go deep down into our lives, to change our character, right, to make us more like Christ. If we, do, if we do that, then we failed. It doesn't matter how much you know. It doesn't matter whether you can recite Wayne Grudem's book in and out. It doesn't matter whether you're, uh, whether you're a Bible student or not. If you don't live out the word, if you're not trying to be like Jesus, all your knowledge, it's nothing. It's worth nothing. You might as well have memorized the almanac of all these uh, useless facts, world records. Right? That knowledge is nothing. We've got to live it out. Because if we fail to live it out, we lose an opportunity, a powerful opportunity to encourage people and to build them up by demonstrating that we actually believe the things that we say we believe. And when you see this worship team singing songs of praise and you observe their faces, you see at times, not every moment, right? but you see at times smiles. Why? not because they're receiving so much joy from being highlighted here on stage. It's not because, uh, because they think that you're worshiping them. Why are they smiling in response to the song? <clears throat> because they, they see the lyrics on their pages. And as they see it, they're reminded of the truth, and they're singing those things out because they believe it. Right? Think about the most encouraging people in your lives. Right? Who are they? Hopefully they're not just people who listen to you and say, hey, you're doing great all the time. Because sometimes that's not true. The most encouraging people in a Christian's life are other Christians who are demonstrating Christ-likeness, right? Isn't that the most encouraging thing? When you observe Christians being Christians, 
Like, wow, what a concept, right? Christians being Christians. But that's one of the most encouraging things right? because it reminds you, hey, they're just like me. I can do that too. I can place my hope in Christ too. I can try and get my mind thinking about the truth too. Right? That's essentially what we're called to do in discipleship, right? Follow, imitate me as I imitate Christ. We're trying to encourage people to imitate who? Christ, ultimately, right? Christ. And so, right, when we see that, that encourages us. When we see other people doing those things, it's like, oh, I didn't know it could look like that. That is, that is way easier than I thought it could be. And so, yeah, I can do that, right? Yeah, I can do that. And so, when we live out those truths, right, we demonstrate to the world that we actually believe these things. So we're going to quickly observe four different ways that right living is done in response to God's word and how that relates to our encouragement of one another. Okay. So the first way is that right living is in, uh, in response to God's word reveals itself when we live as children of God when we live as children of God. So again, Paul reminds believers what the, uh, where their identity is found, and then he identifies an inseparable link between right th- knowledge, right, right thinking, and right living with a command in verse 6. Verse 6 says this, So then, right purpose statement, let us not sleep as others do, but let us be awake and sober. So when Christians know that they are sons of light and sons of day, they are to act differently than those who are of the darkness and the night by not sleeping. Now, this is not a command for you all to not sleep or saying that you're in sin because you sleep. That's not what this is saying here. It's not saying that we should never sleep. We'll sleep when we're dead and we'll just drink coffee and we'll get through. That's not what this verse is saying. In this context, the specific word for sleep here has the meaning of being spiritually indifferent. Those who are of the night and of darkness, those who have not placed their faith in Jesus Christ, are spiritually indifferent to God. There are people in our culture today who will tell you, I'm not, I'm not exactly an atheist. I'm, I consider myself to be a spiritual person. I feel very connected to the world around me, to the, to the trees and to the ocean and, and what, you know, whatnot. When we're talking about spiritual indifference, we're not talking about, do you consider yourself a spiritual person? Spiritual indifference is indifference to who? The Lord, to God. Right? That is what spiritual indifference is. Not that you think yourself to be a spiritual person, but that your spirituality is linked to the wrong things. Paul recognizes that it is entirely possible for people to say that they are Christians, but to still live like those who are spiritually indifferent. And he tells believers, he's telling believers here, don't be like that. Don't live as if you are spiritually indifferent just like everybody else. Rather, you should be awake. You should be sober. Another way we would think about those words are you should be alert. You should be watchful when you're tempted to think that God does not care for you and that he is against you. You are to be self-controlled as even though the circumstances are uncertain. Why? Verse 7. For those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk, get drunk at night. We will 
bear similarities to the people that we interact with in this world. Right? We're going to have some links, of, uh, some points of common ground. That's going to happen. But even though we will have common ground with other people, we should live in such a way that it is substantially different from their life. Right? The way that we live should be substantially different from theirs. If we say that God is number one in our lives, do we actually live as if God is number one in our lives? Right? If you say God is number one in your life and what that means for you, how that, how that um, translates to you in real life is that you come to church on Sundays and you maybe go to a midweek fellowship and you read your Bible maybe like three times a week. If that's what you mean by God is number one, maybe you ought to reconsider that. And I'm not trying to give you a standard by which you are to... Uh, obtain to, but what I'm saying when I say you ought to reconsider that is if you say God is number one in your life, does it show up beyond church attendance? Anyone can attend anything. Anyone can come to church and be faithful in coming to church. But if God is number one in your life, do you live like it? Do you love him? Do you desire to obey his commandments? Do you desire to become more like Jesus Christ? Are you willing to call sin what it is and deal with it? Or are you just, oh yeah, God's number one because, well, I said I'm a Christian, right? and so God's number one. What does it look like? What does it look like? We must live differently. We must have priorities that reflect God's priorities if we want to encourage people, if we want to encourage people with the truth and the hope that is found in the gospel, we have to live differently. We have to live differently. We should not appear just as ungodly as others do in our responses and our reactions to other things in life. If nobody can tell in your difficulties and in your trials that you are a Christian, that's a concerning thing. Because where's your hope? Where's your hope? It's not in Christ. It's in your circumstances getting better. But how's that any different than an unbeliever? How's that any different than an unbeliever? Unbelievers hope all the time that their circumstances will go away. They hope all the time that things will get better on their own. Or that someone else will come alongside and just deal with it for them so they don't have to deal with it. That's not where our hope is. Our hope is in God. Right? The, most, the, the best hope that we can have is God. It's in Christ. It's in the hope that is to come, that we will be with him forever. So when we say that God is number one, we've got to think about that. What does that look like in our lives? And it should be beyond any kind of performative standard, but do you love Jesus? Are you consumed with getting more of Jesus? Becoming more like him? And that's what having Christ as number one in your life looks like. That's what uh, having God as number one in your life looks like. Well, secondly, uh, if we're going to live in response to God's word, uh, we have to live ready for spiritual warfare. Live ready for spiritual warfare. Verse 8. But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. The majority of us Christians tend to live our lives as if we are in spiritual peacetime. 
And the only time that we tend to think that we are in spiritual wartime is when we're experiencing trials and opposition. But what we are reminded of here is that we're in spiritual wartime until Christ returns and brings us home. Until that time, we're all in spiritual wartime. It might seem peaceful, but this is wartime. This is wartime. As soldiers of our Lord, we have to be willing to do the work our king and commander calls us to do. We are about his business, not ours. We follow his commands. Which is why we don't just sit back and act like those who are spiritually indifferent. Right? They're about themselves. They're about the advancement of their own kingdom. They're about their goals. Right? We're not like that. Because as Christians, right, we are to live not for ourselves, but he who died for us. Right? That's what we're supposed to do. We are called to be on the alert. We are called to follow our Lord's commands. And so if we are living in wartime, we don't wander around without our armor on because we never know when we'll be attacked. Right? If you are in a war-torn country, if you're in Ukraine, and you're on the battlefield, and you know it's an active battlefield, are you going to walk around without your armor on? No. Why? Because you don't know when you're going to get attacked. It's dumb. You'll die. Think about this. Earlier on in the pandemic, when we had very little understanding of COVID and how it was transmitted, we wore our masks because we didn't know anything about it. Right? So we wanted to make sure we were protected. And if we forgot our mask, we'd go racing and looking for one. Because right? we wanted to make sure that we took care of ourselves, that we protected ourselves. This is not about masks, by the way. So if you are tempted to be distracted by the mask part, don't get distracted by the mask part. That's not the point. The point is this. In spiritual wartime, we must make sure that we are ready for when war finds us. Right? We don't go looking for war. It finds us. And so... When we encounter the anxieties and hardships of life, the breastplate of faith and love are meant to shield our souls from the weapons that may be used against us to discourage us and tempt us to leave the faith. Our faith, it's not rooted in our circumstances. Our faith is rooted in our Lord, in his character, in his word. And that faith is fueled by love for God, which leads then to our desire to do what pleases him rather than what pleases us. And so the breastplate of faith and love rooted in God is a protection against the things which may cause us to doubt God, to doubt his goodness, to doubt whether he is in sovereign control, to doubt whether he actually cares for us like he says he does. It protects us from the ebbs and flow of our emotions when life is difficult, knowing that the one whom we've placed our faith in is the one who will keep us safe. The one you've placed your faith in is the one who will keep you safe. And in addition to the breastplate of faith and love, we also have another piece of armor to put on. We put on, as a, as a helmet, the hope of salvation. Paul's aim in this text, is to remind the people of the hope that they have in God despite the fact that the day of the Lord is coming. But who's it coming for? Not for you. It's for those who are unbelieving. So when Christians 
might experience doubt and believe that they are targets of God's wrath. This armor that we are to put on is meant to defend us and protect us from that spiritual warfare that we experience. Putting on the hope of, of uh, salvation as a helmet is another evidence of, of that as we guard our minds from the doubts and temptations that we might experience. When we remember what lies ahead and we forget what lies behind, the concrete hope of being with the Lord forever gives us peace. It gives us calm. It gives us comfort, no matter what untruths may try and slink their way into our minds. This, in turn, prepares us to help point others to the same truths also. And the hope of salvation that we put on as a helmet brings us to the third way right living uh, in response to God's word reveals itself, which is when we, uh, that uh, we are to live in hope. We are to live in hope. 1 Thessalonians 5, 9-10. For God has not appointed us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. Or if you want to rephrase that, For God has not appointed us for wrath, but he has appointed us for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. The hope of salvation reminds us what God has done for us in Christ. For those of you who may be discouraged by what you see in this world, uh, by what many believe to be the decline of this nation, by the loss of decency, uh, uh, human decency in this life, and even just by what you are experiencing in your own lives, all is not lost. All is not lost. It gives the appearance of being lost. But all is not lost. Remember what is true in this time. God is in control. God is on the throne. He's sovereign. Many of us believe in the sovereignty of God until that belief is tested. Once that belief is tested, we're just like, oh no, what's going to happen? How are we going to live? Our gas price is going to be high forever. Who's going to take the Oval Office next? Our hope is never tied to who's in the Oval Office. Our hope is never tied to which political party is in power. Our hope is always, has always been, in our God, which is why we remind you every four years, God is sovereign. God is sovereign. He is not surprised by what we see. In fact, he's in control of all of it. He's moving all of human history to the appointed time where he will bring us home and he will judge unbelievers. But God has not appointed us for wrath. We are no longer the target of his righteous judgment against sin because all of our sins have been paid for through Christ Jesus. He has appointed us. He has designated us for salvation. And so the sureness of our salvation that has been won for us and given to us by Christ is the comfort that we need to remind ourselves of when, we, when everything around us seems to be falling apart. Remember, when Paul is talking about the day of the Lord, he's not doing so to threaten the Thessalonian believers to behave rightly or God will judge them. When he brings up the day of the Lord, he's trying to comfort them. He's reminding them that the day of the Lord's not for you. Judgment's not for you. You're going to be with Christ forever. 
In other words, the goal of this section is to remind the Thessalonians, don't worry about when the day of the Lord is coming and if you're going to be in it. It's not for you. You're going to be with the Lord forever. So comfort and encourage each other. Or uh, comfort and build up each other. When all seems lost, when we feel lost, this is the hope that we cling to when we're discouraged. We have Christ now and forevermore. Yes, the things that we experience in this life may bring us to our knees in tears. But the one who will sustain us and give us hope through all of the trials that we face and endure is our Lord. He is the one who stands beside us, even in our tears, even when we are on our knees, and he gives us hope. That is what we have in Christ. He saved us because he loves us. And he wants us to be with him forever. He didn't just save us so that he could add us to his collection of people that he saved. We don't belong in a trophy room. Like, look, guys, look at all the people that I saved. It's not like he's opening packs of baseball cards saying like, oh, I got this one, this one, this one, this one, this one. That's not what he's doing when he's saving people. He's saving us because he loves us. He wants us to be with him forever. And as a result, if that is the confidence that we have in him, we have hope. We know he's going to hold us fast. There is no need for fear any longer because we know without a shadow of a doubt that we're going to live together with our Lord forever. And that brings us to the fourth way, right living in response to God's word reveals itself. And that's when we live a lifestyle of encouragement when we live a lifestyle of encouragement. Verse 11, therefore comfort one another and build up one another just as you also are doing. Again, Paul does not talk about the end times and judgment in order to threaten the Thessalonians so that they would behave more Christianly. He's not saying, oh boy, y'all don't get your act together. Your daddy's going to come over here and he'll give you a woman. That's not what he's saying. When he's talking about the day of the Lord, he's saying, that's not for you. Here is your hope and your comfort. He's trying to encourage them in their doubts and in their concerns that this is not for you. And as a result, they are to take this comfort that they've received and they are to give it to other people. Now, I know that the NASB and the ESV translates the first words as encourage one another. The LSB translates it as comfort one another. And what the LSB is trying to do here is show the relationship between 1 Thessalonians 4.18 and 1 Thessalonians 5.11. It's translating those same words as, well, the same. But either way, right, the encouragement that can come from these truths that we're meditating on, they're to encourage us, right? they're to comfort us. The main idea is that we are to come alongside one another and remind each other of these truths when we're tempted to forget what these truths are. And as we do so, we build, what, we build one another up. Right? We edify each other. We help each other grow strong in the areas where we're weak because we're reminding ourselves of the truth that is found in God's word and how we are to live as a result and evidently, the Thessalonians were doing some of this, right? That's why he tells them to do it, uh, to comfort and build up just as they also have been doing. However, just as it was with their love for one another, Paul is saying, hey, you guys are doing well. 
keep doing well, right? Excel still more. Just because you're doing okay doesn't mean that you should slack off, right? We are to continue to do this. This is a pattern of our lives, a continual pattern of our lives. And so in our encouragement and building up of one another, what we remember about God's word is not the only important factor in how we encourage each other, right? We ought to remember the truth, of God's word. That is critical, but proper living in response to God's word is also important. Right? If we truly believe what God's word has to say, then we will live like it. And in doing so, we'll encourage other brothers and sisters to do the same, to have that same hope, to have that same mentality, to pursue God, to live for his glory more than anything else. And that's an encouragement for all of us. Right? When we see people being Christians, right, that's an encouraging thing because it reminds us that we too can do that. When others see that we not only believe in God, but we also live in response to that, right, our behavior is a powerful testimony that can give us that opportunity to encourage and build up others. Well, in conclusion, this morning we've had the opportunity to examine 1 Thessalonians 5 and observe as a template for how uh, we can find encouragement for ourselves, but also how we can encourage and build up one another in this life. As we saw in our study of this text, there are two necessary elements of truth that help us learn how to encourage and build up one another. First, we recognize that our ability to encourage and build up one another is built first and foremost off of right thinking about God's word. Without proper thinking about God's word, we can easily be discouraged. We can easily forget uh, or actually be fearful, sorry, not forget. We can easily, well, yeah, we can forget right, who we are, uh, but we can easily be fearful about our life's circumstances. But when we remember the truths that God has established, we can be comforted and strengthened to press on even when life is hard. Second, we recognize that right living in response to God's word is critical in helping us encourage and build up one another. It is important to minister to the mind with truth, but encouragement and building each other up also can take the form of living out these truths that we say we believe. When other people see how we're applying the scriptures to our lives, right, they're going to want to worship our God too because they see this is powerful. This, is, you know, this, this God actually can change lives. He can actually save people. We can actually live differently, respond differently to our circumstances. For those of you who uh, like to have discussion questions for your own reflection or for conversations later on this week, here are some questions that we can meditate upon. Number one, what are the promises or Bible passages that speak most to an area in your life where you need encouragement? So just identify those promises, those Bible passages. Question number two, in what ways can those promises or Bible passages uh, bring you hope in God, right? How can we more specifically apply those passages to uh, our situations where we need encouragement? Number three, this is more of a practical homework assignment for us to consider as a church body. Who are people in the church who could use encouragement and strengthening this week? Who are some people who could use that encouragement and strengthening? What are some ways that you can practically contribute to caring for these people that you've identified? We do live in troubling times. 
But the truth that God cares for us and will bring us safely home to himself is a comforting truth. If you're here this morning and you've not placed your faith in Jesus Christ, well, the fact of the matter is these truths, these comforts and and building up and encouragement is not for you. But it can be. It can be. These truths can be for you. We ask that you consider the great love that God has for you. He loves you so much that he sent his son to die on the cross for your sins. To take the punishment that you deserve. He did that for you so that he could bring you to himself. When you believe in Christ and you acknowledge that you're a sinner. That hope and that comfort can be for you. He took all that wrath that you deserved. He put it on Christ. And he gave you Christ's righteousness so that when he looks at you, he doesn't see you no more. He sees Christ. That that is the hope that every Christian in this room has. That wrath is no longer ours. Forgiveness is ours. And so I beg you to consider that great love that God has for you and to place your faith in him. Because that forgiveness, that hope, that comfort that we've been talking about all morning, that can be yours today, this very hour. So I pray that you, that you consider this great love that God has for you. Let's pray. Our Lord, we are so grateful for the comfort and the encouragement that can be found in your word. We're grateful because, Lord, though we deserved wrath, because of our sin. You chose to set your love on us despite all of the sins that we've committed. And because of that, the day of the Lord is no longer ours to receive. We have hope that we will be together with you forever because all of our sins have been washed away. We've been washed clean. We are no longer crimson and stained, but we are white as snow. And so we're grateful, Lord, for this forgiveness that we have, and we pray that you would save people to yourself this very morning. It's in your sons, and we pray. Amen.